Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we find out about new and efficient ways to make water safer to drink. Now, water is incredibly important for all human life, but getting access to clean and safe drinking water means making cheap and efficient ways to purify water, ways to treat wastewater, and to understand the effects of humans have on their water environment around them. This week, we look at three interesting stories about humans and water. Consistent access to clean and safe drinking water is one of the biggest challenges facing the world. Because whilst you can go few days without food, you can go a much shorter time without water. And access to clean and safe drinking water is thus one of the biggest challenges that we face to improving the health and living conditions of people across the world. Now making water clean is an incredibly important part of that challenge. It's one thing to have access to water, but it's another thing to have access to water that is good for you to drink. Because it's very easy often to find water, but that water can be incredibly polluted and dangerous for you to drink. So nearly a third of the world's population doesn't actually have access to clean water for drinking. So how can we make water cleaner? And how can we do it in a way that's really efficient and cost-effective? Because most of the people who don't have access to clean water are doing so in a pretty challenging environment without a nice water distribution system that you can take for granted in countries like Australia. Now in Australia, our water comes from dams, And primarily, we don't use that much treatment. We might have a few chlorine dosing plants, the occasional treatment plant, but say here in Melbourne, most of our water runs through a catchment area, gets filtered naturally, goes into a large reservoir, and sits there for a while, filtered out sediment, and actually just gets a tiny little bit of chlorine dosing with some fluoride on the way to your tap. But that's not how it is across the world. Now, one of the best ways to actually purify water, which is not normally done because it's so energy intensive, is of course to boil it. Because by boiling and evaporating the water and then condensing it back down again, you actually pretty much remove everything from the water that would otherwise cause problems. Now, it's important to understand when we talk about purifying water, there's a couple of things we want to get rid of. Microbes, as well as heavy metals, and a bunch of other different things inside the water itself. Now, using sunlight to just boil the water and heat it up can kill microbes and pathogens, but it doesn't actually get rid of the heavy metals because when the water cools, they're all still in the water. Solar-based water purification, where the water actually evaporates, does both because it actually gets rid of the heavy metals. They get left or deposited behind. The problem is, most solar evaporation just requires a large amount of energy. When you think about it, evaporation really only affects the top layer of the water, and you have to wait for it to go all the way through and down. That's obviously inefficient. At least boiling, you can heat up the whole tank, or at least most of it, whereas evaporation, well, you're really only working top layer at a time. So the concept that Professor Gao looked at was this interficial heating. Basically, you put multiple floating, multi-layer absorbing and wicking materials on top of the water so that the water on the surface, or effectively the surface area of water, gets spread out across all these areas. You get a lot more than just that top layer. You actually start drawing it up and across and through a lot of different layers. This is pretty beneficial. But, you know, if they're floating and covering the water and scattered all over it, well, they're not getting as much sunlight, so they don't actually work that well. 
So that's why coming in on an angle and having a super absorbing metal that can soak up the sun rays most effectively is actually the best of both worlds combination. And not only that, it's also incredibly inefficient. So that's where researchers from the University of Rochester come in. Led by Professor Shunli Gao, they've published in the journal Nature Sustainability a way to use lasers to make an incredibly efficient water purification process. Other authors on this paper include Sumbash Singh and Mohammed El Kabash, along with a number of other authors involved from University of Rochester. Now, this was actually developed by researchers from the physics group. Chunli Yao is a professor of optics, and they used a pretty high-powered femtosecond laser to actually etch a particular pattern into a normal everyday sheet of aluminium. Now, why they did this is try to develop a little piece of equipment that you could distribute that only requires sunlight. It doesn't have any moving parts or complicated mechanisms, but uses a structure emplaced on it to actually give access to eventually clean drinking water. So how do you turn a piece of aluminium into a water treatment plant? Well, it involves the use of this laser pulses to etch the surface of the aluminium sheet and into a certain structure that is super wicking or water attracting and also has a, a large amount of energy absorption. These two things work together in a complicated way. Now, what first happens when you place this little sheet of aluminium in the water at an angle facing the sun, the, the metal itself draws a thin film of water up over the metal surface. This is the super wicking phenomena. Basically, the water gets wicked upwards along the metal surface. That is pretty important. The other part is that the metal heats up in the sun, retaining nearly 100% of the energy it absorbs. The sun comes in and stays trapped inside that metal plate. And that means that the metal plate can rapidly heat up that water that's now drawn across it in a really thin layer. Now, at the same time, the intramolecular bonds of the water actually give a boost to the evaporation process, speeding up the average evaporation time. So these three things all work together and actually get at a pretty close to ideal 100% efficiency. In fact, they actually see it go over that compared to a theoretical model. You can't be more than 100% efficient because what is the extra efficiency from? But this is actually compared to the theoretical mathematics of it. It's so good at drawing up water and evaporating it, it works better than they even anticipated. Now, the best part about this method is that it's incredibly simple and durable because all you do is take this piece of metal, turn it on an angle and place it in the water. Yes, okay, making this little special etched piece of metal is a little bit complicated, but the actual device itself, once mass produced, is actually pretty easy to distribute and get running for a lot of different people. Now, to test this, you actually have to now put all kinds of contaminants into the water to see what happens if it actually gets filtered out. And what they showed is that detergents, dyes, urine, heavy metals, glycerin, they all got removed to the safe level of drinking. And this is a pretty important project. And the reason why it's important is it's not just valuable for developing countries and providing clean and safe drinking water for people across the world. That's one of the reasons why the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation funded it. But it's also good for people in emergency services and the military who are deployed and don't have access to water infrastructure, be able to find and get themselves something to drink quickly and continue on. Now, there's some great research published in the journal Nature Sustainability by researchers from the University of Rochester, including lead authors Subhash Singh and Mohammed El Kabash, led by 
Principal Investigator, Professor Shunli Gao. think about eliminating bacteria or maybe heavy metals but there's a lot of other things that can still remain in the water things like pesticides pharmaceutical products endocrine disruptors are they all part of these what we call emerging contaminants that are often even found in treated domestic wastewater even after it's gone through lots of different stages of primary and then secondary treatment and this is a changing part of our world and water treatment it's exactly what researchers like Professor Patrick Drogi from the Institut National de la Recherche Scientifique, INRS, and his team have been investigating and trying to figure out ways, together with the European Membrane Institute and the University of Paris Est, have been investigating ways to clean up all this water, to get rid of some of these secondary contamination methods. And it was published in, in the journal Science of the Total Environment. Principal authors in the study include Yassine Ovard and Clement Trelou. Now, what they did was try to solve this problem by using some electricity. As we've seen before, firing lasers at things and jolting it with electricity can be actually a pretty effective way of breaking down some pollutants that remain in water. In this case, they're using Advanced Electro-Oxidation Process, EOA. And by having two electrodes into the water, they can start to break down what would otherwise be non-biodegradable pollutants. And now, in the water treatment process, we often go through a large amount of primary and secondary treatments, and sometimes these will involve filtering, sitting, scooping off the top, going through then more sand and more grit filters, maybe adding in some dosing chemicals. The problem is, it doesn't get rid of these non-biodegradable pollutants that easily. All these biological treatments where we either separate out or add in bacteria and algae to chew down and break up all of those solids, doesn't actually get rid of stuff that it doesn't biodegrade. And that's where electricity and electrodes come in. So by passing electric current through the electrodes, what they generate what's known as hydroxide radicals, or OH. Now, these are great because they actually start attacking some of the different molecules remaining in this pollutant sludge. Now, this is great because it does a couple of things like break down non-biodegradable pollutants, but it also doesn't require any additional chemicals to be added to the water. This means if you're applying it at the secondary stage, once you've already gone through all the filtration processes, you can clean up the water without having then to dump a whole bunch of nasty chemicals in it and then try and figure out a way to take those chemicals back out. So this makes it a pretty attractive technique. But how you develop these electrodes and what you put on these electrodes is pretty important because if you use different types of catalytic electrodes different metals on the surface of them you actually produce more and more or larger quantities of these hydroxide radicals now depending on the type of catalyst you use as well they can also be far cheaper to produce and that will greatly reduce the cost of the treatment which is one of the key things phd student yasino ada is actually investigating and working on in this paper now there's lots of different types of filtration and treatment techniques so naturally, the researchers look to see if their new electrode-based method could boost and work in all different types, conventional membrane and bioreactor treatment processes. Now, 
one of the things actually we're trying to break down in this wastewater was actually paracetamol. And they chose this particular molecule because it's pretty much one of the world's most widely commercially available drugs. And it's found in pretty universally in a lot of wastewater across the world. They, they also tried this same method for you know, different pollutants as well. But they're really interested in what impact you could have on pharmaceutical molecules. But one thing to keep in mind is, of course, when you start to break something down, its composite pieces can actually still be pretty dangerous. And in the case of pharmaceutical components, actually weird pharmaceutical byproducts of breaking apart something like paracetamol can actually cause all kinds of other things to occur as well. What they saw is that actually that the toxicity of the solution actually increased during treatment because, well, they broke down, say, paracetamol or other pollutants into other components, and these little components were actually more toxic. But as the treatment progressed and the more and more electricity was passed through and these kept continued to break down, they actually managed to make it pretty clean and get rid of it all and break down all those last little pieces. But it shows you that water purification isn't a straightforward thing. But we now have a pretty efficient and cheap method of actually helping break down pharmaceutical and other non-biodegradable pollutants in wastewater, which has a great impact for not only making our wastewater cleaner, but also helping ensure that we get rid of pharmaceutical waste that ends up aggregating in our food webs, ecosystems, and water supplies. This is some great research published in the journal Science of the Total Environment. One of the incredible things about humans is the way that we interact with our environment. Sometimes this can have negative consequences like we see with climate change, but other times we can change and literally shape the face of the lands around us by adjusting the flow of rivers or changing them to better suit our needs. We've been doing this for thousands upon thousands of years. For example, such as in Australia, the Gunditjamara people built the Bujbim eel trap system over 6,000 years ago to help grow and capture and ensure a permanent supply of eels, fish and other water plants. And this kind of river shaping and changing, or natural waterway system shaping and changing, has been done all over the world. But how to study the actual impact of when someone changes a river system and what that means for the environment around it? You don't get a lot of good examples of that to look at a really, really long-term study before and after. But that's where researchers from the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute, STRI, have recently spent some time investigating and publishing the journal Science of the Total Environment, including Lee's authors Jorge Salgado and Maria Velez. Now, what they were investigating was the Panama Canal, because this is pretty much the largest adjustment of damming of a river that you could possibly think of. When they built the Panama Canal over a century ago, the Chacres River was dammed to form a really large lake, the Gatun Lake. And that forms the principal waterway of the canal, which also is at the time the largest man-made lake in the world. So what can we learn by studying this lake and piecing together what has happened in the environment in the Panama Canal and around the Panama Canal over the last hundreds of years? 
Well, that's exactly what these researchers did. They took samples from all around that area to try and get a detailed study of the ecology of before and after such a massive change in the nature of that ecosystem. Now, if they look at the paleoecological data and core samples, you can have a great idea what happens when you change the literal course of a river and form a massive new lake over a hundred year period. Now they could see, of course, things like enhanced pollution caused by the canal construction, changes in the regional climate and shifts in land use as more species came in and salt water began to intrude in through the canal network. Now, in most cases, the impacts of local dams would begin to dominate, but they actually found that the Panama Canal natural processes still are far more important there than the, the local dammed ones. And by taking these core samples, it actually helps research like Jorge Sagardo to actually travel back through time and try and piece together the ecology before and after and actually get a real snapshot of the exact way that this biodiverse ecosystem has changed. But it also helps make sure that they can protect the ecosystems that are existing in the canal and the new lake, Lake Catan, today and into the future, and make sure that they maintain the health of this whole ecosystem. Some interesting research published in the journal Science of Total. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. From wastewater treatment to new ways to filter water using pieces of metal, plus what happened to the Panama Canal and the course of the river changing over time. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.